History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. spectacular people welcome to this 513th episode of the history ghost bump podcast ghost tours for the theater of the mind i'm your host diane and this is kelly kelly on this episode we're going to be sharing with our listeners what we did over my birthday weekend in october we went down to fort lauderdale and we did a ghost tour down there and visited some historic locations and a lot of people think fort lauderdale you just go to the beach right well there's a lot more to fort lauderdale than sand and sun absolutely so we're going to share some ghosts with you guys. Before we get into that, we want to welcome into the Spooktacular crew, Therese, Gail, and Dawn, the female Dawn, D-A-W-N. Thank you so much for joining our Spooktacular crew. And now this moment, Noddity. When someone says, I love my mummy, many people assume that the person speaking those words are referring to their mother. However, in reading Pennsylvania, those sentiments could be referring to a mummified corpse. The Almond Funeral Home has been caring for a mummified corpse known as Stone Man Willie since he died in 1895. According to records, the mummy had been on display for 128 years. Those records show that Willie was picked up for drunkenness then released, and shortly thereafter he was arrested again for breaking into a boarding house. The prison warden stated that Willie stood at 5 feet 11 inches and possessed sandy brown hair and a mustache. Willie died in custody after his second arrest. Stoneman Willie was recently interred on October 7, 2023 in Reading, Pennsylvania at the Forest Hills Memorial Park Cemetery. The funeral home's director said that researchers are fairly certain that Stoneman Willie was actually James Murphy of New York, who was of Irish descent and was in reading for a convention. Willie's corpse, or James as it were, had become an icon of the area and attracted tourism to the funeral home. Be that as it may, he is no longer lying in state, but is comfortably resting six feet under with a granite tombstone bearing both of his names. An informational relief will be added shortly, and his whole burial story certainly is odd. Are you afraid of the dark? And now, This Month in History. In the month of November, on the 8th in 1965, the soap opera Days of Our Lives premiered. 
The episode was titled Beyond Salem, Days of Our Lives, A Very Salem Christmas. This daytime Emmy Award-winning show has been broadcasted practically every weekday since that debut episode. The original show consisted of seven main characters, Tom and Alice Horton, Mickey Horton, Marie Horton, Julie Olson, Tony Merritt, and Craig Merritt. Dr. Tom Horton, played by McDonald Carey, was a cast member from the show's inception until his death in March of 1994. He is still heard voicing the epigraph, Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives, as well as the outro to commercial breaks. Frances Reed played Tom's wife Alice, the show's matriarch. She was a cast member for 42 years. Fans of the show are familiar with the fondness of Alice Horton's donuts that always worked their way into so many storylines. Over the years, many core character actors have remained. Dr. Marlena Evans and John Black, played by Deirdre Hall and Drake Hogeston, Bowen Hope, and so many more. With such a long-running show and so many actors that have stayed for 10, 20, and even 30-plus years, one can imagine the set is more like a family than just a job. Here's to many more Days of Our Lives. Fort Lauderdale means fun in the sun at a beach for most people. But this Oceanside town has another side. There are many haunted locations here, and for good reason. The Seminoles fought with settlers. The titans of industry made this their playground. And this is the Venice of America, with 165 miles of scenic inland waterways. Water is a key conduit for paranormal activity. In October, we met up with our listeners, Amanda and Charlotte, and had some dinner and then headed off for a ghost tour. Join us as we share the history and hauntings of Fort Lauderdale. They're playing cooler. Oh, it's open on Saturdays and Sundays too? Good. Yeah. Cool. If we shine our flashlight through it, um, there's some pretty cool artifacts in there. Oh, yeah. They're really Very good cool. for the era. Um, they have some clothes from the pilgrimage and things like that. Hey. Cool. So this will be open tomorrow. Oh, okay. Wow, it goes fast. It now says over as a very oh. popular restaurant and oh. bar. Charlotte sang here. Really? Oh. Yeah, yeah, they do um, the bands. Uh, there's a few times where I've been here, they do a school of rock. Yeah, she did that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For children, it's a very popular place, um, but it has a very bad home of a three-legged dog. So, in the 1940s, we all know that there was a rise in crime. And so, since Fort Lauderdale was a thriving city, um, it attracted a lot of Fort Lauderdale was originally known as New River Settlement. Before European settlers moved in, the Tequesta tribe was in South Florida and their dwindling numbers merged with the Seminoles. The Seminoles were a fiercely independent people, and when the Spaniards came, they called them Maroons or wild free people because they couldn't be subjugated. The United States military built a stockade at the fork of the New River in 1838 and named it Fort Lauderdale after Major William Lauderdale. He led a detachment of Tennessee volunteers during the Second Seminole War. 
Two other forts were built and named for him, one at Tarpon Bend and another at Bahia Mar. Fort Lauderdale was abandoned in 1842, and there weren't many people who lived here until the 1890s. The city itself wouldn't be incorporated until March 27, 1911. The city grew fast, though, and is today one of the 10 largest cities in Florida. One of the things that helped Fort Lauderdale grow so much and got the people to start coming is they started draining the Everglades. And so there was all this swampland that people could buy up. So they started coming. We had dinner at Batch New Southern Kitchen and Tap, which features scratch-cooked Southern culinary food and craft drinks like beer and root beer. The root beer was amazing, and the food was great, too. Then we walked up to the downtown area to meet our tour group under the Thrive Sculpture, which, to us, looked pretty creepy. It features the giant upper torso of a woman ripping her chest open. We were told it was installed after COVID. Lena was our guide. Our group walked down towards the Riverwalk and stopped at the 9-11 memorial that was there, which was made from a piece of debris from one of the Twin Towers. The walk goes along the New River. A train goes through this area as well, and Lena told us that people occasionally claim to see shadow figures along the tracks because people have died on the tracks. What we're going to present here are a lot of the haunted locations in Fort Lauderdale. This is not necessarily in the order in which we visited them. And we've also thrown in a couple of locations that we didn't visit on the tour, particularly one that is very well known. That's a historic location there that is further away, so you can't walk to it. We're going to start with one that we did not visit. This was the former Art Institute of Fort Lauderdale. It got its start in 1968. The school changed locations a few times and added buildings to the campus before closing in 2018. One of the buildings was an apartment complex off Sunrise Boulevard that was used as a dormitory called Sunrise Hall. Before the apartment complex was here, there was a three-story wooden home that probably started as a boarding house and eventually became what residents of the city called a den of filth. Wow. <laughs> During the 1940s, it became a flop house, and this lasted through the 1960s with the police making regular stops to deal with drugs, prostitution, and murder. The building became a real eyesore and finally burned to the ground in the late 1960s. A small apartment-style hotel was built on the spot, and it was quite popular in the 1970s. There were a few stories of strange happenings, but paranormal stories didn't really start coming out until the school started using the building as a dormitory. Students claimed to hear strange sounds, particularly on the second and third floors. The most regular sound was moaning, which always started around 1 a.m. After a few minutes, the moaning would trail off, only to start again. There was never any cause found for the moaning. The sounds of metal tools being dropped had also been heard. High-heeled shoes were heard, clicking on the first floor around 3 a.m. The walking goes towards the door and then goes away. Then shortly thereafter, the shoes sound as if they are running back in from the door and then stop as quickly as they started. So I don't know if that's like something residual where somebody was leaving and then got scared by somebody who was trying to run away for their life or something. Shadow figures were seen walking the halls at night and some students claimed to see shadows standing outside the windows of their rooms. And when they would look outside, they'd see no one there. They'd go back into the room and see that the shadow was still there. The shadow would eventually go away. It's a peeping Tom shadow man. Yeah. And I don't know what the building is today. I don't know if it's sitting abandoned or if they turned it into something else, but the school hasn't been there since 2018. And next we have Esplanade Park, which is today a community center for the residents of Fort Lauderdale, but it once was a scene of some bloody attacks. This park is down by the Fort Lauderdale Riverwalk and has gardens and a pavilion. A fort had once stood where the park is now and had vast stores of ammunition and gunpowder. 
The Seminoles had formed a partnership with some mercenaries, and this group of 10 men broke into the fort and tried to smuggle out some explosives, but were caught. The commander decided to burn down the garrison with the mercenaries inside, and they were killed. For years, the Seminoles and settlers fought with each other over land, and this came to a head after a group of settlers assassinated the Seminole chief, who was named Alabama. They then burned down his hut. The Justice of the Peace was named William Cooley, and he arrested those responsible. But he had to let them go because there just wasn't enough evidence. Both the Seminole and Creek blamed Cooley for no justice, and they planned to get revenge. The Second Seminole War broke out, and on January 4, 1836, a group of Creek Indians attacked Cooley's homestead when he was away and killed his three children, his wife, and the children's tutor, whom they also scalped. They then burned the house. This homestead was just a bit down from Esplanade Park. Now it is said that the park is haunted because of the attack on Cooley's home and the killing of the mercenaries. The mercenaries appear as grotesque zombies with rotting flesh and open wounds. A man who was walking his dog along the river walk felt a tugging on his shoes. He looked down to see a skeletal hand clutching his ankle from the ground, and the man ran and called the police. The police actually found the bones still there when they got to the park, and those bones were carbon dated to the Third Seminole War. What? So there are those who think this <laughs> might be a mass burial site. Wow. Yeah, don't put a park on top of those places. I, I dealt with that in Denver with Cheeseman Park. You're going to get some hauntings. Lena told us about a man who'd been walking through the park, and he decided to take a break on the bench. He tied his shoes, sat up, and noticed a man was sitting next to him. He looked over, and it was someone covered in blood, wearing indigenous clothing, looking at him, who then disappeared. Goodness. Yeah. <laughs> so we got to walk along the river walk, which is really nice there. When she first was telling us about it, I didn't clue in that this used to be called New River and that that river is called New River. So she said, we're going to be down here on the New River Walk. And I'm like, oh, the River Walk is new. <laughs> I mean, it was pretty nice and it is fairly new, but it wasn't as new as I thought it was. But anyway, we weren't able to go through Esplanade Park because it was set up for a vegan festival that weekend. This is true. So we just had to kind of look at everything from the distance. And we didn't have any paranormal experiences while walking along the outside of it. The scariest thing, well, I'm not really scared of the paranormal, but was that giant orb weaver spider. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we were walking along. It was, tropical, it was huge. Yeah. Tropical orb. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Our son, Austin, would have been thrilled. He loves spiders. Yeah. Next, we have Lucky's Tavern, which is the home of the three-legged dog and offers over 100 beers. Unfortunately, we didn't partake. No, we did not. But there was a pub crawl going on from the same company at the same time. And it was kind of cute. They came out and the tour guides talked to each other for a minute. And they were asking, <laughs> oh, are you guys on a tour too? Or he was telling them that we were on a tour too. And I said, yeah, but we're not getting drunk tonight. And they all laughed and they said, we are. <laughs> yes. And a couple of them were, I think they were. their words quite well. <laughs> You have no go. Oh, you have ghosts? She, she's doing the regular tour tonight. Oh. We're not getting drunk tonight. We're not getting yes. drunk? We are. <laughs> All right. Have fun. Let's go. Enjoy, you guys. You too. Thank you. Good grief. Good thing they were walking or crawling, whatever it is. Yeah, that's why we don't really do pub crawls because, I mean, I love hearing about haunted bars and stuff, but I'm like, I have to drive after this. So if well, I was just you, walking around a city, maybe. But And you want to retain the details. Yeah. Fort Lauderdale attracted mobs and gangs, and one of these mobsters was standing in the doorway when he was shot and killed. 
The bar had been a pretty violent place. Staff members claimed to feel strange things in the bar. One evening, a bouncer was laying his head down on the bar because he was tired and he felt something nudge him. He looked up and no one was near him, so he laid his head back down. Then he felt another little push. He looked up again and still no one. The bouncer laid his head down one more time and was violently pushed off his chair. This time when he looked up, he saw a dark figure and it scared him. The bouncer told his boss and the boss told him he shouldn't sleep on the job. (laughs) So I don't know if he didn't believe him or he's like, well, that's what you get for sleeping on the job. People claim to feel cold spots and to see shadows in the bathroom. Female bartenders have been touched inappropriately by something they can't see. A young woman in a long Victorian dress with her hair pulled back has also been seen here, missing her feet. It's amazing how many ghosts are missing their feet. And I always wonder, is that just because some of them they would cut down to size to put them in their coffin? Or it's just a thing that doesn't manifest for spirits sometimes? Could be. I don't know. Although one of the most common things that we hear when it comes to haunting activity is disembodied footsteps. So how is that happening if you're missing your feet? (laughs) It's a mystery. Next up, we have Original Fat Cat's Bar. There are really no public records about this location. Today, it's a dive bar with great food and live music, which was going while we were there. This was a residence for a time and a family was living there in the 1960s. The husband was found dead in the house from cardiac arrest, but the really strange thing is that his hair had turned white. I don't know if this is actually true, just based on some of the other stories that we heard, but it's an interesting story and you have to wonder if he was scared to death. Could be. A few years later, another family set up a business in the building. This was now the 1970s and they were selling clothing. Unexplained things started happening like patrons seeing shadows and being scared by something. The family claimed to hear strange chanting. They also saw a group of figures standing in a circle. Rumors circulated that something demonic was connected to the location. A group of paranormal investigators was brought in and they collected some evidence using some old experiments. As you can imagine back in the 1970s, they didn't have the kind of equipment we do today. A journal was discovered beneath the floorboards, and as they flipped through it, they realized that it belonged to a warden, and that got historians thinking that this had once been a jail. The warden had written down his beliefs about rehabilitating prisoners, and torture was the cure to him. Oh, sure. There were 42 prisoners under him, and he would torture them every day with both physical and mental means. Neighbors finally called the police after getting tired of hearing the screams of the men. Before they shut down the jail, the warden poisoned all the inmates and then the guards, his wife, his children, and himself. People claimed to see shadows looking out of the windows. Sounds like perhaps he should have been one of the inmates. And now a little break for a word about one of our sponsors. And now on to Fire Station 3. Firefighters were at Fire Station 3 for 77 years. They moved on to a new station, and this one became a museum. The fire station was designed to look like the houses around it, and even the interior was more home-like with a dining room, kitchen, living room, and bedrooms that branched off a hallway. The only real difference was the engine bay where the fire trucks were parked. 
For years, firefighters at the station had weird experiences that convinced them that there was a ghost in their midst. They thought the spirit might date back to the 1940s because a firefighter named Robert Leland Knight died on his second week in the job. He stepped into a pool of water that had been electrified by a downed power line. The activity continued even after the firefighters moved out. Tour guides have reported seeing lights turn on and off and locked doors and windows will suddenly swing open. This spirit likes to pull pranks. One day, a man was doing some repair work on a tile wall and he had heard the stories about the ghost. He decided to ask for his opinion, so he queried, Robert, tell me if you like what I'm doing. There was a loud noise in the other room, so he went to investigate, and when he came back, almost all the tile work he had done was off the wall and neatly stacked on the floor. So I guess that was a no. <laughs> Sounds like a clear no to me. <laughs> Looks like a cool little museum. It's got some old fire trucks in it, and we love old fire trucks. Yes, we do. It's hard to miss the Museum of Science and Discovery in Fort Lauderdale. This is a huge building. It opened in 1992 and is the most visited museum in the state of Florida. I thought that was pretty interesting. There are a lot of displays, interactive programs, overnight experiences, and an IMAX theater. There was a sitting area outside the entrance, and Lena invited us to sit down while she shared some legends connected to the site. And the really cool thing about where we were sitting is, what did you call that? Like it was a giant mousetrap type thing that was above our heads? Yeah, it looked like the mousetrap game. Yeah, so it had like these balls that would release it looked like and go and do things. So Right. But it was like four stories high. Yeah, it was, <laughs> it was huge. huge. Looks like a really cool place to take your kids. Apparently, a family had lived here with a three-year-old daughter. The father was an alcoholic and he would get very drunk every night. One night, he didn't come home and his wife and child went out to look for him and they found him drowned in the New River. The mother went into a deep depression and she decided to take her life but she couldn't leave her daughter behind, so she threw herself and her daughter into the river, and they drowned also. Staff at the museum claim to find puddles throughout the museum where there shouldn't be water and even wet footprints. And I think she told the story that we've heard many times. You know, you clean it up and you take the mop bucket away and come back and, oh, there's a puddle of water again. The scent of whiskey is also smelled. There are some people who believe that the spirit of the little girl haunts the New River Inn, which is right down the river walk. And that brings us to Fort Lauderdale's historic village. So we'll start off here first with the New River Inn. And this is a location that we actually went into the next day and did a little walking around and looking at stuff. The New River Inn was one of the first hotels in the area. Philemon Nathaniel Bryan was one of the founders of Fort Lauderdale. He was born near Jasper in Hamilton County in 1844, where we investigated the old Hamilton County Jail and where I showered with some convicts. That is right. I was, <laughs> I was so excited. You know, that's one of the things that's fun about visiting some of these smaller locations and stuff is that we know these smaller cities too. Because the minute it said he was born in Hamilton County, I was like, oh, we did the jail there. And then it said it was near Jasper. And I'm like, well, the jail is in Jasper. <laughs> I love that place. It was great fun. We got to get back there. Philemon married Lucy Catherine Murray in 1867, and they had seven children. He had a citrus grove that he lost to frost, as so many... Yeah, pretty much everybody in the central <laughs> Florida area have. ended up losing their citrus groves. So they realized the hard way, you got to have it even further south. So he moved the family to Fort Lauderdale to start over. The railroad would become his focus and was given the job of supervising the laborers laying track for Henry Flagler's Florida East Coast Railway. The Bryants had a house across from the railroad station and they used it as a boarding house. Brian saw the success a luxury hotel could have if it was built near the station, and so he replaced the boarding house with the Bryan Hotel. 
Contractor Edwin T. King built the hotel from hollow concrete blocks formed from beach sand. No rebar was used in the construction. Rather, this is considered a gravity building, with the same kind of structure as the pyramids of Egypt, where the weight of the blocks ensures its strength. It's really cool looking, too, because these aren't really big bricks. They kind of almost look like the same size as normal bricks, a little bit bigger. And not only was this built that way, but there are two other historic houses there that were part of the Bryan family that were all built in the same way. I thought they were actually kind of medium sized between cinder blocks and bricks. Yeah, that's how I would describe it. Okay. It was just weird to me because we're used to like our house's concrete block and it's those big cinder blocks. Right. The New River Inn was unprecedented in its luxury for the community and opened in 1905, featuring 24 rooms and two bathrooms. And those two bathrooms was like, wow. For 24 rooms. <laughs> yeah, you definitely would have had to have been sharing there, Kelly. King also built the Bryans a concrete block house in the Colonial Revival style at 227 Southwest 2nd Avenue. That house still stands and is considered the oldest remaining example of residential masonry architecture in Fort Lauderdale. Philemon died in the house in 1925 at the age of 84. Lucy died a year before Philemon after breaking her hip, slipping on a peapod on the front porch of the Bryans' former home when she was 72, and people claim that her spirit haunts the home. A yoga studio had once used the home, and patrons claimed that when they would look in the mirror, they would see the image of an elderly lady with her silver hair in a bun and dressed in a black wool dress. She would give the startled patrons a friendly smile. That home was not on our tour either, but I thought that was a neat little side note. And that name King is going to come up a lot. He built a ton of stuff here in Fort Lauderdale. As I said earlier, the hotel and two other historic houses on the property were all built that same way. Well, that house, the Bryan's house, the matriarch and patriarch, their house was built in the exact same concrete block way, too. Eventually, the name of the hotel was changed to the New River Inn. The hotel ran for 50 years before being closed in 1955. Today, it's a museum that pays homage to Florida's past and pioneer life and still features the same wood floors and front desks. The museum has a few ghosts hanging out as well. On the tour, we were told there were three spirits in the museum, but only one had been identified. They believe that spirit is Brian himself. And we did find other claims that people see the spirit of an elderly gentleman resembling Brian in his former hotel. But unfortunately, the story we were told behind his haunting here couldn't be more wrong. We were told that he passed away while trying to save his three children during a hurricane and that the children survived. Well, as you know from what we told you, Brian died when he was 84. He'd been ill for over a year. He more than likely is here not because of tragedy, but because he loved the hotel. Lena went on to tell us that a tall, dark figure wearing a long coat has been seen, and this figure has no face. When confronted, this ghost has thrown its arms up and asked, what are you looking at? <laughs> Maybe the fact you don't have a face. And I wouldn't confront it. I'd be like, get me out of here. Aw, no, you wouldn't. I'd be like, can you talk into my little device here? I know you don't have a mouth that I can see, but could you talk into this? There are those who think he was a visiting railroad man who died at the hotel. The third spirit seems to be a young girl of five or six. A staff member once saw a little girl kneeling down and they went up to talk to her. This person looked away for a moment and then looked back at the girl and she was gone. The belief is that she might be a girl who drowned in the river, either, as we said earlier, the daughter of the whiskey drinking man. Of course, they said that she was three and this one's supposed to be more like five or six. So I don't know. Or it could be some other child, possibly Lulu Marshall. This is the name that came up on the tour as well. And apparently she'd been a student of Ivy Stranahan. 
The Stranahans were a founding family of the city as well. We'll talk about them in just a little bit. Many children died from yellow fever in the city. The girl likes to play with toys and has been seen looking out of the windows. And we didn't experience anything while we were in there, but it, it's great. If you want to f- learn about the history of Fort Lauderdale, it has a lot of displays about that stuff and explaining who the families were and how they went about building this city and all the work it took for them to drain the Everglades. And it's amazing how they built Florida. Yeah. And Daniel, our tour guide, was a wealth of information. I really liked him. He was. When you go into the New River Inn, you can do your own little self-guided tour, but then the other property locations there they take you through with the guide and tell you stuff which takes us to the house that's right next to the inn the king cromarty house and this is also part of the historic village which was moved to its location right next to the new river inn legend claims that it was built from the wood of a sunken ship that was found down closer by miami this was built by edwin t king who was another early settler of fort lauderdale He and his brother built some temporary homes before sending for their families. After Ed's family arrived, he petitioned the city for a school, and a woman named Ivy Cromarty came to be the first school teacher. She was joined by her brother, Bloxham, who would end up marrying Ed's daughter, Louise. Interesting thing about his name. I've never heard that name before for a person, but we have a street here called Bloxham in Claremont. And I was like, (laughs) oh, interesting. The King Cromarty House was built from Dade County Pine in the four-square Georgian style and completed in 1907. It was originally one story with a dining room, living room, and two bedrooms. A second story was added later with two bedrooms and a bathroom. Eventually, Louise and Bloxham inherited the house and the couple had two children. The house stayed in the family until 1968. Louise was living in it with her brother Bird King at that time. They sold the house to a man named Stan Smoker, and he deeded the house to the Junior League of Fort Lauderdale. In 1994, the Fort Lauderdale Historical Society took over the house and opened it to the public as the King Cromarty House Museum, which, as we said, we toured. Daniel Smith was our guide, and he was a wealth of information. The house is filled with antiques, only a couple of which were original to the family. Daniel had maps to show us where the house had originally been built and pictures showing how the Junior League of Fort Lauderdale barged the house upriver to this site in 1971 to save it from demolition. I know that we've talked about on previous episodes when they've moved these big Victorian homes and such and they would just put them on a trailer and drive them through a city. We're always amazed by that. This, I was like, they put it on a barge and took it right down the river because it was built up the river and they just floated on down. It was the easiest way to do it. Our guy, Daniel, reminded me a lot of the guy that took us through Lillian Place with all the antiques in there because oh, absolutely, he enjoyed asking us too, <laughs> like, here's an antique. What do you think this was? And telling us what the different antiques were and stuff. And he yeah. was kind of surprised we knew what a lot of the stuff was. <laughs> I'm like, oh, we've been through this quiz before. On a side note, we figured out what had gotten mixed up with the history about Philemon Bryan when learning about Ed King. Ed eventually moved from Fort Lauderdale to Lake Okeechobee, and he died there during a hurricane in 1928. He dove into the water to save two children and lost his life. He was found after the waters receded, still holding one of the children. So in Lena's defense, she was new because we did ask her, you know, how long you've been doing this? Because I got a feeling when we were on the tour that she was kind of new to it. And um, I don't know that she has gotten the history bug yet. So she wasn't as like it was a job kind of thing. So I think what happened is she was told this story and kind of mixed it up with another story. I don't want to say that the tour was giving us wrong information. I just think she got a couple of facts 
uh, mixed up. So Ed might be haunting some places too, maybe down near Lake Okeechobee. I don't know. But what a great guy. He not only basically built part of Fort Lauderdale, building all of these homes for people and getting them to come there. But then after he left, he gave his life to try to save a couple of kids. The house is said to be haunted by Louise King Cromartie. Her translucent apparition is often seen looking out of an upstairs window wearing a white dress. She's also been seen walking inside the house and sometimes is in a pink dress with her blonde hair up in a messy bun. Visitors often report hearing children playing and laughing, and this may be because there is a schoolhouse that is part of the historic village as well. Disembodied footsteps are heard in the house, and the swing on the front porch has been seen rocking back and forth entirely on its own and not just because the wind is blowing it. (laughs) So about that schoolhouse, Daniel took us over there, which is kind of behind the King Cromartie house. The way they describe it is it's in front of the King Cromartie house, but it kind of depends upon how you're entering the historic village. Right. This is not an original schoolhouse, but a replica. Many of the artifacts inside, though, are authentic, and people claim that they hear the disembodied sounds of children laughing and playing. This schoolhouse definitely has some stuff going on. I follow an account on Instagram called She Haunts. Her real name is Gina Black. She is local to Fort Lauderdale, and she's a paranormal investigator, and she shares investigations all the time on her account, and she's been in the schoolhouse a couple of times doing investigations, and they definitely have caught. They have the portal that Paraforce makes that makes that creepy sound. For those of you who listen to the St. Augustine Haunted House episode that we did with when my family came down here, we had a portal in one of the rooms. And so it makes that weird, creepy, hollow sound when it's talking and stuff. So they caught stuff doing that. They've caught EVPs. They've had their EMFs going off like crazy. The one that she shared, you could definitely see that they had a couple of devices that were going off at the same time as the portal talking. So there's definitely something, even though this schoolhouse is just a replica, there's something here on the land, which makes sense because there's so much history just right there. And our final location here is the Stranahan House, which we were unable to visit because it was closed while we were in Fort Lauderdale. And we couldn't even drive past it because of construction. (laughs) It was so upsetting. I mean, we tried to get to it, but we just got locked out in a whole bunch of gridlock and people flipping UEs and driving stupid. (laughs) I'd already looked it up ahead of time, and it's only open on certain days and then for certain times. And it was supposed to be open on that Friday. And usually they have tours at 1, 2, and 3. But the only one that you could book online was at 10 a.m. And I'm like, well, if we were driving down that day and I'm like, if we want to get there by 10 a.m., we have to leave here before six. And I'm like, no, I don't want to do that for my birthday weekend. (laughs) Well, we were trying to get over to it just to at least take pictures of the outside. Yes. And so originally we were down walking along the river walk and we saw that they have a little ferry that will take people around to different spots. A water taxi. Yeah. So we were like, oh, and it's free. Let's give that a go. So we were standing there for a while and then we realized, well, by the time it finally gets here and picks us up and takes us over there so we can take pictures of it and gets back here, it's going to be like another 20 minutes or something. So we're like, why don't we just drive over there because we were ready to leave and stuff. Well, that was a bad idea because one of the reasons why they have these weird limited hours at the Stranahan house is because they're doing this construction. I'm not sure if they're expanding something or whatever, but we get there, the road's blocked off. And then to the left is the downtown area, which you can't drive through. So it was like, okay, we can't go that way. And then everybody's following us. We ended up like in a parking garage trying to do a U-turn. It was a nightmare. So I was like, forget it. We're not going to see the house. But it is said to be an excellent example of Florida vernacular architecture. It was built by Frank Stranahan. Stranahan had been born in Ohio in 1864. He worked in a Youngstown, Ohio steel mill 
and this impaired his lungs, so he moved to Florida in 1890, seeking a better environment. He settled first in Melbourne until a cousin offered him a job at the New River Camp at Fort Lauderdale, and he arrived there in 1893. That first job was managing the Overland Mail Route. He also started a ferry service to help people get over the New River. Frank built a house for him to not only live in, but to service his enterprises, so this had a waiting area for the ferry and a post office. Frank also opened the house up as a type of trading post, and he not only welcomed the white settlers, but Seminoles as well. He was liked by everybody and is seen as a founding father of the city. We mentioned Ivy Cromarty earlier as the first school teacher at Fort Lauderdale. She was only 18 years old when she moved to the town in 1899. Frank fell in love with Ivy and asked her to marry him, but she said she would only accept under two conditions. He needed to shave his beard, and he had to agree not to have children. She clearly liked children since she was a teacher, but it is thought she was traumatized when she helped her mother during a horrendous childbirth that didn't go well. The couple married in 1900, and Frank set about expanding the house into two and a half stories. The first floor had his office, a parlor, dining room, and kitchen, while the second floor had six rooms, a master bedroom, two smaller bedrooms, a sewing room, and two guest rooms. And there was a bathroom up there as well. The whole house was constructed from Dade County Pine, and there were verandas on both floors. The house was ahead of its time with indoor plumbing, running water, and electricity. Ivy taught the children of Fort Lauderdale for 17 years, and she also taught the Seminole children for 15 years. She created the Friends of the Seminoles Foundation and helped to establish Everglades National Park while also promoting women's suffrage. The Stranahans had a great life, and then the stock market crashed. It wiped out most of Frank's assets, save his farming interests. A hurricane that same year wiped out the farming ventures. Then a trip to the doctor revealed that Frank had terminal cancer. He was told he had six months to live, and he fell into a deep depression. Frank tried to kill himself during a hospital stay, and he was sent to an asylum. Ivy was desperate to have him brought home so that he could die in peace there. She petitioned the authorities, and they let him go home. And then she watched him like a hawk, never leaving him alone because she was afraid he would attempt suicide again. One day, she left him alone outside for just a moment, but it was long enough for Frank to tie himself to a heavy metal object and drown himself in the new river. And apparently there were family members who saw him out the window and tried to run to save him, but since he had tied himself to that metal object, there was nothing they could do. Ivy turned her beloved home into a boarding house to make ends meet. Frank's suicide meant she couldn't collect his life insurance money. She eventually leased the first floor to a restaurant. Ivy died in her sleep in 1971, and the restaurant continued to run in the house until 1979. When it closed, the house was given to the Seventh-day Adventist Church, to which Ivy had been a lifelong member. The church sold the house to the Fort Lauderdale Historical Society. The house was restored to its 1915 look on both the interior and exterior and opened as a museum. The Stranahans had it painted white with green trim, and that is what it is today. A hurricane-proof roof was put on the structure in 1996. The interior has Victorian-era furniture with many original pieces to the Stranahans, including Ivy's China. The house is said to be haunted, and quite haunted. Lots of spirits here. One spirit is believed to belong to Ivy's sister, Pink. Pink's husband had gone away on what he called a business trip, and Pink was pregnant and didn't want to be alone, so she came to stay at the Stranahan house. She had lost three previous pregnancies, so you could see why she didn't want to be alone just in case. She ended up losing this one as well after she heard news that her husband had left her for his wife, whom Pink had no idea existed. 
pink hemorrhaged badly and refused to go to the hospital, and she died in the parlor. Paranormal investigator John Mark Carr wrote the book Haunted Fort Lauderdale, and he wrote in that about an investigation he conducted. EVPs that he collected made him think that Pink had wanted her husband arrested and is still seeking that in the afterlife. Pink asked where Clark was, and he was the sheriff of Fort Lauderdale back at that time. Two orbs are seen traveling together at times, and it is surmised that this is Pink and her unborn child. She was seven months pregnant when she lost the baby, so it's pretty far along. Ivy's brother Albert was a black sheep of the family who enjoyed carousing around, gambling, drinking, and sleeping with ladies of the evening. One of the latter gave him TB, and he died from it in the Stranahan house six months later. His spirit manifests as a bit playful, but inappropriate at times. Not surprising. Albert is yelled, get out, on EVPs. His spirit isn't the only family member here. Ivy's father, Augustus Cromartie, became ill and she had him moved into the house where he died. This is today the gift shop and his presence is felt in there. He doesn't like change and will throw things like books when displeased. Sometimes he will make the shop ice cold. And then, of course, Frank is here. Both visitors and staff have seen Frank's apparition in the house, but he is also seen jumping in the new river in a residual manner. And the Stranahan house is right there on the New River, so for him to have drowned himself in it, it, he didn't have to go very far. Ivy's spirit is still said to be in the house as well. Nobody is sure who the spirit is that helps out on the stairs leading up to the attic. They are narrow and can be dangerous, and many times staff have felt a cold hand on their back steadying them on the stairs. Occasionally, the scent of a perfume that Ivy wore is in that area, so people think that she is the helper. If Ivy gets upset with someone, she tends to blow in their ears. So I'm assuming it's not a nice (laughs) little blow. Otherwise, she's very pleasant. Ivy had taught Seminole children, and a story claims that a young Seminole girl showed up on her doorstep one day and passed away. So I don't know if she came to her because she was sick. Her voice has been picked up on EVPs. She not only answers questions, but she likes to sing and chant. The girl has a sweet tooth and likes candy. And I love this story. I hope it's true. She will take candy out of a jar that sits on Frank's desk in his office, and staff will find it piled up in the attic. Oh, my goodness. So here we have something that's physical, able to grab that. The thing I hate, though, about the candy, because we used those root beer barrels at the Villisca Axe Murder House as a trigger item, and you're always like, I feel bad if they can't actually taste it or right. eat it. So I wonder if she ends up leaving the candy there, because she's like, I want it, but I can't eat it. So it might not be such a good thing necessarily. I am so bummed that we were not able to go through this house because it's clearly the most haunted location in Fort Lauderdale. So we definitely need to get down there when it's open so we can go through it. Fort Lauderdale is more than just a fun spring break destination. Ghost enthusiasts who love history will have a great time here as well. Are these locations in Fort Lauderdale haunted? That is for you to decide. As you can see, Fort Lauderdale has more than just beaches. It does have beaches. They're great too. And we went down to Pompano, which is about 20 minutes actually up the road from Fort Lauderdale. (laughs) It's north. And uh, stayed at a nice resort there. It's one of our favorite places to go. I always tell people when you come to Florida, if you just want to enjoy beauty, go over to the Gulf Coast. And then if you want to play in the ocean, go to the East Coast. (laughs) Except for Pompano. (laughs) Except for Pompano. This was our second time staying at Pompano Beach. And it is calm, calm, calm. I can't remember the terminology, but there there's some sort of formation that causes the water to be calm there. Yeah. So even though it's on the Atlantic. 
You, I love it. <laughs> I was going to say, you were thrilled to hear that that's always the case. She's like, we can go to Pompano Beach all the time. Well, I felt bad for you. You brought your body board and couldn't do anything I with know. it. I know. This is twice now that I've tried to bring the boogie board down. It's very relaxing. Not happening. They have little fish. They didn't do it this time, but the first time we were there, they nibble on your toes and stuff. So I had my feet up off the... <laughs> As high as I could get them to my body. And I was like floating on top of the water most of the time. Because I'm like, I don't want those fish nibbling on my toes. And I was thinking, dang it, no pedicure this trip. <laughs> I know. Billy's <laughs> like, you have to pay a lot of money for a fish pedicure. I'm get one for free here. Well, you can't get a fish pedicure at our website, but you can get other information. Oh, so we encourage you to head over to historyghostbump.com. And if you want to send us some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. You also can leave feedback on all of our social media. If you're listening on Spotify, we have questions and answers on each episode. You can leave comments under there. We do read those and we really appreciate that. We've gotten a lot of feedback from you guys on Spotify. So that's wonderful. And if you have a way to review us on whatever app you're using, we would love for you to do that as well. Please share us with your friends and family. Kelly, remember when our listener Sarah was telling us that she was going to be doing her honeymoon through the South during the spooky season? She, I she do. was going to be stopping at several places. She got back to us and let us know that she really enjoyed their tours with Haunted History in New Orleans. Excellent. It's one of our favorite tour groups to use down there. They used Secret History Tours in Mobile, Alabama. So when we go to Mobile, we'll have to try them out. And she said their guide was the sweetest. In St. Augustine, they used a ghostly encounter, which we've also done before. And they're actually who we did the investigation at the haunted house with. We also stopped in Franklin, Tennessee and did a tour with Franklin Walking Tours. A good and spooky time was had by all. And then she included a couple photos from their mobile tour. And uh, just congratulations to her and her new husband. And uh, he must be a good guy that he let her do all this spooky stuff. On, <laughs> yes, on indeed. I want to thank you guys for tuning in to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode isn't brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We want to welcome into the cemetery Isela Keenan. We're going to be burying you under a marble headstone. Thank you so much for supporting History Goes Bump. You really do help us bring this show to the masses. Have a spooky experience that occurred at an historic location? Want to give us feedback or have a suggestion for the show? Share it with us at historygoesbump at gmail.com. Fans of the show are familiar with the food foodness. The foodness of Alice, because you know you're going to talk about her donuts. She was famous for her donuts. Everybody was trying to get the recipe. <laughs> Come I, on now. I have food on the brain. Well, we haven't had breakfast yet, so that's understandable. <laughs> Fans of the show are familiar with the fondness of Alice Horton's donuts that always work their way into so many storylines, and donuts should work their way into every storyline, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Don't I know it? <laughs>
The Seminoles had formed a partnership with some mercenaries, and this group of 10 men broke into the fart. <laughs> How do you break into a fart? I could see you breaking in while somebody's farting. Or farting while you're breaking in. But how do you fart? The fart's breaking out. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Just don't fart, Kelly. We're in a small closet here. (laughs) And stop making fun of me. (laughs) I might gas you out. A man who was walking his dongle. His dongle? Uh oh. (laughs) Dongle. He had a dongle for my phone. I was going to say, maybe he had his laptop down there and was, you know, his dongle with him. I don't know. (laughs) And I snort. Yeah, great. I guess I'll just leave that in with the bloopers, too. All these wonderful mouth noises I try to take out. But during the blooper, I'll leave that one in. Staff at the museum claim to find puddles throughout the museum. Museum? Museum? It's a museum. It's a museum. The railroad. The railroad. He said railroad wood. Wait, 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 wait. Is it Elmer Fudd's Railroad, maybe? No. It's maybe a, you're saying it right. It's the Waskily Wabbit. While also championing... Championing. She was champing. When I wrote this word, I went, I hope I don't have to say it, because <laughs> championing... You were hoping it would be my paragraph. so hard to say. <laughs> I have certain words I just can't say. <laughs> championing. Is that it? Championing? While also championing... <laughs> championing... I'm going to cha- I'm going Champ- to change it to promoting. <laughs> there you go. While also promoting women's suffrage. 